Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open it to Revelation chapter 2. I welcome those here in our celebration service, the ones in our summit service. I was able to visit with a few moments ago, uh, all those worshiping at home. Uh, You're a part of our family, and we're glad that you are worshiping with us. Uh, In recent weeks, we've been focused on these seven letters to the seven churches, letters from Jesus to these seven real churches uh, in Asia Minor in the first century. Uh, Today, we come to the letter at Thyatira, uh, the letter for the church at Thyatira. This is the longest of the seven letters, and I have much to say today. Uh, So we're going to skip over any kind of introduction, and let's just begin to read. Verse 19 says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. And so Jesus commends the church at Thyatira as he does six of the seven churches that we will focus on. They have done some good things. And it seems like their activities, their commitments, their good things are on the rise. That's a good, that's a good thing to say. But look at the beginning of verse 20. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, we're going to stop there and come back in just a moment. I want you to see, though, a connection between verse 19 and verse 20. We'll talk about Jezebel and tolerating the evil of Jezebel. We'll focus on that. But notice first this connection. This church was known for so many good things. Their calendar was filled with activities. They could talk to you about, we did this and we did that. But now Jesus at the beginning of verse 20 reminds us that no amount of good works, no amount of accomplishments will make up for the fact that you are compromising and you are tolerating evil. Now that'll become more important as we get further in the message, but notice that while they did some very good things, they still tolerated evil and the good things didn't substitute, did not make up for the evil that they tolerated. So look at verse 20 again. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so here's this woman. Uh, She's called Jezebel. We believe that she was a literal woman, a real woman, connected to the church at Thyatira and to the community of Thyatira. Jezebel most likely was not her name. Uh, You would not have named a daughter Jezebel in those days, just like you wouldn't name a daughter Jezebel today. Uh, Jezebel stood for something. Uh, It uh, stood for compromise. Jezebel was the woman, uh, the wife of King Ahab several hundred years prior to this. Uh, King Ahab, a very wicked king of Israel. Uh, His wife, Jezebel, a very wicked queen of Israel. And she led the people to idolatry. And that's what we know about Jezebel. And that's what they would have known about Jezebel. And so this word Jezebel, this is more of a of a moniker for who she was. This was her nickname, so to speak, uh, with the Lord. She is a Jezebel. Now, what what is she doing here? It says that she is leading the people to sin. Two sins are mentioned here, the sin of idolatry, that she led those people in the church to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We talked about that last week. It's not about the meat. It's about the worship that would have been involved in this. 
But I think primarily the sin that's focused on here is sexual sin. It's mentioned in verse 20. Uh, We'll see in a moment. It's mentioned in verse 21. It's mentioned in verse 22. She is leading the people in the church and the people in the community to sexual sin. Now, what's the sin of the church? It says that they are tolerating this, this woman. They are tolerating this influence toward sexual sin. Now, look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, we've run across the word repent a few times as we've worked our way through these letters. So let me just point out two things that we learn about repentance right there in verse 21. First of all, it says that Jesus has given her a time to repent. He has given her an opportunity to repent. You can't repent just whenever you want to. The opportunity for repentance always comes from the Lord. And when the Lord is convicting your heart, when you feel that pressure, when you know of your guilt and God is calling you, that's the time God has given you to repent. Because we see another thing here. God gave her a time for repentance, but now the time has expired. Not only does the opportunity for repentance come from the Lord, but that opportunity is limited. There are some windows in life that God gives us to repent. And if we let those things pass by, then the opportunity is gone. There's so much more to read here. Uh, with the letter to the church at Thyatira. And we may come back to that at some point, but let me just stop here and focus on what we've learned so far. The sin of the church was that they were tolerating evil and specifically that they were tolerating sexual sin. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean if we say that somebody or some church is tolerating sexual sin? Now, that's not the same as committing sexual sin. Now, it includes that, If you're committing sexual sin, then you are tolerating it in your own life, right? There's sexual sin in you. You're not dealing with it. You're not not taking it to the Lord. You're tolerating it. So it would include committing sexual sin. But more than that, tolerating sexual sin means that you are allowing it to exist in your family, to exist in your church and in your community and in your country. You are tolerating that sin. The word toleration means so many different things today, and some of those definitions are probably good and some are probably bad, but, but, but let me give you uh, what I believe specifically toleration means in this context. First of all, it means that you permit sin to continue without expressing biblical value judgment. It means that you see the sin, you see the sexual sin, you're aware of it, but you have not made a statement, a biblical statement, concerning the nature of that sin. Secondly, it means to ignore sin because it is either inconvenient or uncomfortable to deal with. Sometimes we're aware of sin. We know that it's there. We may even have a desire to address it, but it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. So we we keep our thoughts to ourselves. That's the toleration of sexual sin. And then finally, it means to allow sin to remain undisturbed, either in the church, in the culture, or in our lives. The church at Thyatira, their primary sin was that they were permitting, they were tolerating sexual sin. And if we go through and read the rest of the letter, we will discover that this toleration ends in death. That God brings severe judgment to both Jezebel, those who have followed Jezebel, and the church because they've tolerated sexual sin. 
And so I want to take some time this morning and just explain from the Bible, explain why toleration is so dangerous. Why is it such a big deal? It seems like let everybody do what everybody wants to do. Let, let's just keep our words to ourselves. Let's not offend anybody. Let's tolerate sexual sin. But the Bible says clearly that is the wrong thing to do and it is a dangerous thing to do. And I want to show you why. So first of all, the danger of tolerating sin toleration is rebellion against God. Now, this is the most simple of the four things I'm going to give you, but it has to start here. If we tolerate sin, if we just allow sin to remain unaddressed, then that is not some passive thing that we're doing. That is active rebellion against the Lord. If God has told us that something is wrong, if he has made it clear in his word that something is wrong and we ignore that, we dismiss that, then what we're saying is that God is incorrect in his evaluation and that we are correct in our evaluation and that is active rebellion against God. If we take what God says is wrong and we embrace it or ignore it, we're really saying one of two things to the Lord. And so you decide what you think people are most often saying, you decide what maybe you're saying when, when you or when I tolerate sin. One thing we could be saying is, God, I'm smarter than you. God, I know that you said this is a sin. I know that you said that the consequences of this activity are, are dangerous and it will bring death. I, I know that you say that this sin is something that will be regretted in the future, but God, I just think you're wrong. I've looked at this and I think that my judgment is better than your judgment. I think I'm smarter than you when it comes to this. I think I know what the consequences to this sin are and God, you are wrong. Maybe that's, maybe that's why we tolerate sin. But if it's not that, it's this. We may be saying to God, I'm just more loving than you. God, I know that you say you care for us and you want what's best for us and that you want to protect us and you want to show us kindness and, and that this sin would be the opposite of that. This activity would be the opposite of that. But God, I think that my love is greater than your love. I think I care for me and I care for others more than you care. And I want what's best for people. And God, I'm just not sure that you really, that you really love people. My love is greater than your love. That's why. That's why I tolerate sin. That's why I don't say anything, because my love is greater than yours. Listen, church, anytime we tolerate sin, you can tell from those two uh, justifications that the toleration of sin is always rebellion against God. We, we've just come to the conclusion, I think in many churches, that to tolerate sin is such a passive thing. Let everybody have their own way. But the Bible makes it clear to tolerate sin is to rebel against the Lord. Number two, the toleration of sin always leads to greater sin. You know, that's just the nature of sin, right? When we commit sin, that one sin makes it much more likely that we will commit another sin, the next sin, the toleration of sin always, without exception, leads to other sins. You've probably heard the old Baptist outline. I think every Baptist pastor has used this. I don't know who started it. Uh, but, but this will sound familiar to you. And I think about it often when I, when I think about sin. Sin will always take you further than you plan to go. 
It'll always keep you longer than you planned to stay, and it will always cost you more than you planned to pay. That's the nature of sin. You think it goes to one place and stops, but the truth is the slippery slope, the further you go, the further you are going to go, sin, the toleration of sin, always leads to more sin. Let me show this to you from uh, maybe an unlikely verse, Ephesians 4, 19. And I can show this to you on the screen. Verse, verse 18 talks about, Paul talks about people who are guilty of sin. And then 19 tells us what comes from that. It says, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Now, we're going to leave that verse up a moment because I want you to see how one sin leads to another sin. So they're already guilty of sin. That's verse 18. And what did that lead to? It led to callousness. Now they have a hard heart. They're less sensitive to sin. What does that lead to? It leads to promiscuity, it says here. Well, that's more sin. What does the promiscuity lead to? It says it leads to every kind of impurity. So now the sin is diversifying, right? Now it's all kinds of sin. What does that lead to? Well, according to this verse, it leads to a desire for more. What does that lead to? It says, and more sin always leads to more sin. It is a lie of Satan that we can take sin and we can, by our willpower, limit sin and limit its influence. It would be as if a doctor told you that you have a tumor, a malignant tumor in your belly, but he says it's just, it's small. It's the size of a golf ball. And you're thinking, the size of a golf ball, I had more than that for breakfast. I'm a big fella, size of a golf ball, that's not much. I think I will just, I will just limit the effect of that golf ball size malignant tumor. I'm just going to make sure that it doesn't spread and it doesn't affect the rest of my body. If just this much of my body is bad, there's a lot more body here, I'm going to be okay. Well, we know that that's foolish because you do not have the capacity to limit the influence and the spread of that, of that small tumor. It's going to destroy you if it's, if it's not treated. Sin is the very same way. You cannot limit the spread of sin in your life if you tolerate it. It will lead to more sin and more sin, and that is inevitable. Now, let me, let me give you a hypothetical that... I've, I've hesitated to say because I, I'm afraid that this may seem like I'm, I'm being arrogant, but I, if you'll hang with me to the end, you'll see it means the opposite of that. But, but let's imagine, and this is you know, sort of a hypothetical, but it's, uh, it's really close to reality. Uh, let, let's imagine that I'm sitting with a, with a gentleman uh, who has uh, just told me that he's guilty of adultery and he is, he's in an affair. He's had an affair. And generally in that kind of uh, situation, he's very upset, he's uh, emotional, uh, he's sorry, he's regretting, uh, most of the time he's regretting his actions. And so we begin to talk about the things that we talk about in those situations. But inevitably, while I'm talking, I'm thinking about something. What about me? What about my marriage? Will I ever be guilty of what this man is guilty of. Will there ever be a time when I'm on that side of the desk and somebody else is on this side of the desk? Will I ever be guilty of that? 
And listen, church, I'm guilty of a whole lot of sins, and, and I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm not perfect in, in any measurement that you could take, but I've not committed that sin. That's one sin, never had an affair, never been unfaithful in a physical way with my wife. I've not committed that sin. And so I'm sitting there, and he's sharing his story, and I'm thinking, what is the difference between me and the man across the desk? What is the difference? What do you think the difference is? Well, I, I, I've thought of some possibilities. Perhaps the difference between me and that man is that I have some character and some goodness in me that is not in him. Maybe God just made me a better person than God made him. Is that the case? No, that's not the case. You live with me very long, you would know that that's not the case. Well, maybe, maybe it's because I have more self-control than he has. Maybe I'm just more in control of my body and my emotions and my thoughts and, and, and I'm just more in control. He doesn't have the self-control that I have. If he had my self-control, he wouldn't be in the situation he's in. I will never be there because of my great self-control. Is that the reason? No. Maybe it's because I have some supernatural protection. Maybe God just keeps me away from temptation. Maybe God does a better job in my life than he does in his life when we both pray, Lord, lead us away from temptation. Maybe God's just better at it for me. Is that the reason? No. You want me to tell you what the reason is? And I don't mean this in any kind of arrogant way, and I hope you'll understand it. It's the other, other way around. The reason that he's guilty and I'm not is because he's been living closer to the edge that I've been living. See, nobody just has an affair. Nobody just commits a sexual sin. It's a process. One sin leads to another sin. Uh, when we tolerate sin in our lives and in the lives of others, then that leads to greater sin and greater sin. And, and when somebody's guilty of something like this, it's because they were living on the edge and a strong wind came and it blew it over, blew them over. And they're, they're responsible for that. They're guilty for that. But had they not been living so close to the edge, they would not have been guilty. See, toleration and sin always leads to more sin, to greater sin. That's true now. It has been true for thousands of years. For millions of people, sin leads to sin. And sexual sin illustrates this, I think, more than any other sin a person could ever, could ever commit. I think we can see this principle not just, uh, not just in that story and in our, in our personal experiences, but I think we can even see it in how we refer to sin. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, maybe you know these initials, LGBTQIA+. Do you know those initials? Do you know what that stands for? There's actually some confusion about it. Uh, the Q can mean two or three different things, and even the people that would uh, fly this banner high don't agree on what the Q means, they also don't agree on what the A means. The A can mean two or three different things. Uh, some people want to add an additional G. The P's are upset that they're not included, if you know who they are. Uh, I don't understand personally what the I is doing in there. That, my understanding is a, is a medical handicap, not a sin. And I, maybe I don't understand it. And, and listen, I could Google it if I wanted to know bad enough. Please don't tell me. If I'm ignorant on that, I'll just be ignorant. Uh, but I don't understand. I don't understand uh, what all these initials are. 
I, I know that the initials keep changing. In the early 80s, it was just LGB, right? And then in 1998, we added a T. In 2015, we added a Q. Uh, last year, Pride Toronto suggested that we change it to LGBTTIAA2SA+. And they still left out the P's. <laughs> but I want to focus a minute on what I think is the most important part of that string of letters, and that's the plus. Whether you say LGBT plus or LGBTQ plus or you stretch it out a little further, I mean, the concerning part is the plus. What does the plus mean? The plus means there's more sin coming, right? Because one sin leads to another sin. We celebrate sins now that I don't know that they really even existed 100 years ago. At least they weren't in the open 100 years ago. And, and you see from that, this principle clearly laid out. One sin leads to another sin. And we can't settle on the initials because we've not finished coming up with all of the initials. We just have to put a plus on the end because sin always leads to sin. If we tolerate sin, there will be more sin and more sin. So I know some people are thinking, well, you tell them, pastor. Uh, you tell those homosexual uh, people, uh, those people who are tolerating homosexuality, you tell them of the danger. And we should, and I am. But I want you to know that it is equally true that if if you're looking at pornography or you're reading pornography, that the same devastating principle applies. Sin leads to sin, which leads to death and destruction. If you tolerate that, it will destroy you. The same thing is true if someone has an improper relationship at work and they plan on keeping that in a box. You can't. Sin leads to sin. If you, if you are focused on uh, the Game of Thrones and the Creek Show, and if you don't know what those are, then that's a good thing. You can't watch those shows and it not affect your heart. That is sexual sin, and sin always leads to more sin and the toleration of sin, even more so. James chapter 1, listen to how, how this is described. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And then, after sin has conceived, it gives birth to more sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. More and more and more. That's the nature of sin. It's dangerous when we tolerate sin because the toleration of sin always leads to greater sin. Number three, toleration. And this is my most important point. Toleration undermines the message of the gospel. Well, today we are so worried that we are going to offend someone. And certainly, we don't want to offend someone unnecessarily, and we don't want to offend someone in a way that uh, is not potentially redemptive. Uh, my goal is not to be offensive. My goal uh, is to be redemptive, to, to, to help people know of Christ. But listen to this, church. If nothing is a sin, then nobody needs the gospel. Do you understand? If, if, if no one will say that something is a sin, then no one will know of their desperate need for forgiveness for Jesus. We worry that if I say that's a sin, that I will offend somebody. But the greatest worry is that they will not know it is a sin and so that they will not be drawn to Christ. They will not run to Christ for forgiveness. I don't do those people a service if I don't point out sin. I do them a disservice. 
And the truth is, sin is sin, whether we say it or not, right? Me saying it's a sin doesn't make it a sin. Sin, sin. And a person is guilty whether they feel guilty or not. The only hope they have is that someone will begin pointing out sin so that they will know of their guilt and run to Christ. Uh, people will say it's hate speech for us to point to an activity and say that is sin. But is it wrong to pull a fire alarm? No, not if the building is on fire, right? And listen, church, the building is on fire. Homosexuality is sin. Viewing and reading pornography is sin. Engaging with sex with anyone outside of your marriage is sin. Any intimacy outside of loving, exclusive relationship with one husband and one wife is sin. The building is on fire. And, and for the gospel message to be heard, we have to be bold enough to say that. Somebody will say, Pastor, you're offending me. Well, because I love you. Or, or more importantly, because God loves you. So you ever wondered why God gave us the Ten Commandments? Uh, I remember a few years ago there was such a controversy around the posting of the Ten Commandments. And I'm all for in favor of the posting of the Ten Commandments. But honestly, I scratched my head during much of that because of some of the rhetoric that I heard. Some of the, some of the things I heard. And I, that was a long time ago and I... Uh, I certainly was not a Bible scholar in those days. I'm not a Bible scholar today. But, but even back then, I think I had a pretty good handle on the gospel, and I just scratched my head. So what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Why did God give those to us? People get this wrong so often. People will suggest that the purpose, and people suggested then, that the purpose of the Ten Commandments is so that people would know what's right and wrong and they would straighten up their lives. They would, they would live on the straight and narrow and they would fix things that are wrong so that they could live a life pleasing to God. Church, let me ask you, is that the purpose of the Ten Commandments? So that people can straighten up their lives and please the Lord? No. Because you can't straighten up your life enough to please the Lord. You, you could make the Ten Commandments your focus every day of your life. You'd still be lost and split hell right, wide open. That's not the purpose. So somebody might say, well, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is so that we'll have a guide for godly living. Well, that's, that is a correct answer. Uh, the Ten Commandments do tell us how to live, and we should follow the Ten Commandments. That's God's desire for how we live. But that's still not the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments. What's the purpose of the commandments? It is to show us how sinful we are so that we will run to Christ for forgiveness, so that we will run to Christ for, for salvation and for redemption. That's the purpose of the commandments. I lived in Alabama at the time that the, uh, the controversy was at its peak, perhaps. And um, I know that some of the people who were against the posting of the commandments would say, you, you can't post you can't place the Ten Commandments where you want to place the Ten Commandments because that offends me. That offends me. And, and then I heard some, some people, uh, some even pastors respond by saying, listen, you shouldn't be offended. It's an ancient document and you know, it's on the wall of the Supreme Court and it's not that big a deal. Uh, it shouldn't offend you. And I was thinking, even way back then, no or yes, it should offend you. That's the whole point of the Ten Commandments. Listen, every time I read them, I'm offended. They offend me. Why do they offend me? Because I'm guilty. 
because I'm guilty. And, and I read the Ten Commandments and I, and I run to the Lord because I'm guilty and I seek forgiveness and solace and help and, and, and the work of the Spirit in my life to change me and form the character of Christ in me. We try so hard not to offend people, but what we end up doing is muting the gospel in their lives. I want to take a little, chase a little rabbit for, for a moment. If I had three hours to preach this morning, and I know I don't, um, I would give at least one hour to the answer to this question. Uh, so I, I'm going to give like two minutes to it, but it's, uh, it's important enough to at least mention. So pastor, if, if we... If we don't say anything because we don't want to offend somebody, if you're saying if that happens we have muted the gospel, and we have, then what should we do if there's somebody in our family? What should we do if there's a coworker, a neighbor? What should we do if somebody's guilty of sexual sin? Well, six things, two minutes. Listen fast. Number one, we should never celebrate sin. We should never celebrate their sin. We should love them. If I, had, if I had a couple of coworkers that were in a homosexual relationship, I would love those people and care for them. If their house burned down and they needed $1,000 to get back up on their feet, me and my wife would give them the $1,000. If they needed a place to stay, if they needed a place to live for a couple of weeks until the insurance company could find them somewhere to go, listen, they could stay with us. And the fact that they're homosexual would not even enter into the calculus of whether or not we would show those people love. But if they invited me to go to their wedding, no way. Because I'm not going to celebrate. I will love people, and we should. But I'm not going to celebrate something the Bible condemns. Well, second, don't shy away from the conversation. Uh, I know it can be difficult, but don't shy away from it. Maybe God has put you in their life for that very purpose. Uh, next, don't have a I'm better than you attitude, because you're not. Next, look for an opportunity to take a firm, clear, loving stand, grounded in God's word. Look for a chance to say something. Look actively for a chance to take a stand. And make sure your stand is grounded in God's word, not in some philosophy, not in some worldview, not in something you read on the internet or saw on television, but in the word of God, you need to know it and be able to take a clear stand. Next, don't connect with a church that supports it. Now, when people ask me as a pastor if they should leave a church and come to another church, and you know, there are certainly reasons why they should. Uh, some of you have come to our church from another church, and you had, I, mean, I don't know all the reasons, but I trust you had a very good reason. There are reasons for a person to leave one church and go to another. But, but if you just ask me, if you just stop me in the, you know, on the street and say, Pastor, should I, should I leave my church and come to go to another church? Or should I leave my church and come to your church? I mean, my first answer is, well, probably not. You know, if you've got a problem at a church, I just think it's Christians. We just stay and work it out unless there's a reason you don't. But I'll tell you, there's, there's one time when I always say something different. If somebody is a part of a church or that church is part of a denomination that has compromised, that is tolerating sexual sin, then you should run from that church. I don't care what church it is. You shouldn't go one more week. You shouldn't send one more dollar. We should flee from those places because they're hurting the gospel message and they're blaspheming our God. And then I'm over my two minutes, aren't I? Uh, 
then you, do, you must embrace the inerrancy of Scripture. You know how churches get into this trouble? Because somewhere along the way, they, there's a question about whether or not the Bible is true on page 806 or on page 1056. And, and there's, a, there's a debate about it. There's a debate. And somebody says, you know, is it really that big of an issue? Let's just learn to get along and let's say that we can disagree about that. Well, that might sound reasonable. Except that once you decide that you're going to disagree on whether or not one part of the Bible is true, then the next year you're disagreeing on what another part of the Bible, whether that part is true and that part is true, and you end up in the mess that churches are in today. And it all starts with with maybe a good-natured, a well-intended compromise on whether or not the Bible is true. We don't have to agree on everything that it says, but we have to agree that it is God's Word and it is true. And if we compromise that, it's just a matter of time. I mean, I think about a church like the Disciples of Christ, one of the most compromised denominations in America. And, and, and I don't believe it started by a bunch, of, um, a bunch of false Christians. I think it probably started with some good people who loved the Lord and loved his word. But there was a small compromise on whether or not some part of Scripture was true. And now... No part of scripture is true. That's the inevitable result. How do we handle sexual sin in our family, workplace, community, and gospel? Those six things. But let me get to the last, my last point. Why is toleration so dangerous? Toleration kills the church. If the church, this is what our community says, what our, our culture says. If the church does not learn to tolerate sin, the church will die. In fact, I read an article in the USA Today in their op-ed section. The title of the article, I'll read it to you. U.S. churches must reject literalism and admit we got it wrong on gay people. And then, and then here's the line in the article. It's an article written to churches giving us some advice. USA Today, I'm sure, is an expert on that. And so here's the, here's the line that really sums up the whole article. And I'll read it uh, verbatim. And I have all this footnoted in my actual sermon notes that you can get on noeldeer.com starting tomorrow. All right. Here it is. Churches will continue hemorrhaging members and money at an alarming rate until we muster the courage to face the truth. We got it wrong on gays and lesbians. Churches will continue to hemorrhage people and money until we make a compromise on this. Well, that's interesting because a lot of churches have made a compromise. And so this is a hypothesis that we can test. This isn't just speculation. This is just a who knows who's right. We can know who is right. We have the experiment and we can look at the data. So 50 years ago, the disciples of Christ uh, decided to compromise to tolerate sexual sin. They have declined 67%. The United Church of Christ, and there are different kinds of churches of Christ, but the United Church of Christ, they, have, they did the same thing. They've declined 52%. The Episcopal Church, 49%. The Presbyterian USA Church, and there are different kinds of Presbyterian churches, they have declined 47%. But how have churches fared that have refused to follow the advice of the USA Today and have taken a stand on, on sexual sin? Well, the Southern Baptist Convention has increased in the same time period, 46%. And the Presbyterian Church of America has increased 790%. And they started a little smaller after a split, but, but still extraordinary, extraordinary. Now, we're not going to justify what we believe by the popular opinion of churchgoers in America. 
but the writer's advice flies in the face of all evidence. A church, listen, never grows by compromise and toleration. A church grows, if it grows, a church honors God by standing on the truth of scripture and refusing to tolerate sin. Now the Bible teaches us that there are four kinds of sin. Do you know what they are? I give you some theological words, but they're easy ones. There's the sin of commission, the sin of omission, the sin of influence, and the sin of toleration. You got that? The sin of commission is when you do something you know you shouldn't do. The sin of omission is when you fail to do something that you know you should do. The sin of influence is if you influence somebody else to commit a sin. And then there's the sin of tolerance. I think the most deadly of the sins, because it's the most sly sin, because it's, it's the most hidden sin, it is the sin of toleration. And for the church at Thyatira, the death of that church, in fact, you fast forward 100 years in history and we know nothing about the church at Thyatira. We know something about every other church in this seven, this list of seven. But this church died. The most dangerous sin that a church can commit is the sin of toleration. Now, as I was praying about this message this morning with some men who meet um, seven o'clock in the morning, we meet right here and we just pray for those in all of our services and uh, here's what the Lord led me to pray for today. There are really two different ways that this message, that this truth could run off the rails. Uh, you know, some churches, they look at sexual sin of every stripe and they say, it's no big deal. Everybody messes up. Who are we to point a finger? It's no big deal. That's one ditch you can run into. And that's a deadly place to go. But there's another ditch. And the other ditch is to say, listen, it's hopeless because you're dirty, rotten scoundrels and we're all guilty of sexual sin in some way. And there's no hope. God condemns us. It is a standard that nobody could uphold. And we just beat everybody up and people could just leave here saying, oh, woe is me. That's a, I, I've never taken a beating like that. I won't ever go back. But listen, I think the gospel road is right in the middle. Sexual sin is real. It is described in, in the Bible. It, it, is, it, is, it is clear to us. And to tolerate that sin in our lives, in our church, in our families, and community is a deadly thing. But Christ has made a way that we can be forgiven, be made right with the Father, and experience the Holy Spirit changing our lives and forming us into the character of Christ. What should we do? Should we just say, well, it's one of those things that's always been in the world, nothing we can do about it. Or should we say, oh, woe is me, this is terrible, I will never measure up. No, we go down that gospel road and if we feel the sting of, of conviction, if we've been given the opportunity for repentance, like it says here for Jezebel, we respond to the Lord and ask him to forgive us because of what Christ has done, we ask him to change us right now to begin a change in our lives so that we can live a life that honors the Lord. With your head bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. Father in heaven, these are hard things to talk about. They're sensitive. They're sensitive because we know there's just such guilt and there's such temptation, there's such danger. Uh, people are either guilty of these things or we know people who are guilty of these things. But Father, I pray that in this 
in this reminder of sin that we just feel drawn to you, that we'll read the Ten Commandments and, and run to the Savior because we know that you welcome open arms, ready to forgive if we'll repent of our sins and hold tightly to you. Father, help that to happen right here in this church and with all those that are watching and listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to stand as we respond.